In a free market economy, having competition is a good thing. It's a really good thing. Some people would say it's actually essential. Uh, it provides motivation uh, for creating better products at better prices. It encourages innovation and efficiency while keeping the prices down. Who doesn't like that? But is competition a good thing in other areas of life? You may think of a number of other areas of life where competition may be a good thing. But there are other areas in life in which competition uh, is not a good thing at all. If anything, it actually would be disastrous. Imagine, for example, if in a marriage one of the spouses feels that the other spouse's heart is being lured away towards someone else. Competition in that setting is disastrous and very damaging. The kingdom of God is not operating like a free market economy. It operates more like a covenant of marriage. When it comes to our spiritual lives and to the kingdom of God in our lives, the struggle with competition for our affections for God or away from God is a very serious matter. It does not produce anything good. If anything, it produces tragic outcomes. And we see the pattern of how when it comes to the kingdom of God and our spiritual lives, competition is a tragic experience. As we open God's word this morning, we will see that the results of a competing kingdom ends up in tragedy and disaster. Would you open God's word to 2 Samuel chapter 2? I'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 32. As you're opening God's Word there, I uh, just want to remind you, if, especially if you're visiting with us, we are working our way as a congregation through the book of 2 Samuel, and we're taking one chapter at a time. And this morning, we're in chapter 2, which means we're still at the fairly early stages of the series. 2 Samuel chapter 2, I'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 32. This is the Word of the Lord. After David... After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. 
Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeriah, and the servants of David went out and met him at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, and the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the, of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazurim, which is at the Gibeon. And the battle was fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. And Asahel was as swift a foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left, and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How? Then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back, and he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel fell and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Amah, which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. And Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, 
If you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up their pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of this word? Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing your ways to us through the history of your people. Father, thank you for this word, and I ask that you would help me proclaim it and help us all to hear it. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray for his glory and honor. Amen. What an interesting chapter. What do you do with these stories? Well, believe it or not, the message of this chapter actually has a very simple message. We see two kings being installed in this chapter. And the message of this chapter is simple. Creating competition to God's anointed king leads to loss. Creating competition to God's anointed king, leads to loss. We see this message unfold in three scenes in this chapter. God's anointed king, David, ascends to the throne. We see that in verses 1 through 7. Then a second scene begins to develop when an alternate king is installed in verses 8 through 11. And then the final part, the competition leads to tragedy and loss, verses 12 through 32. Creating competition to God's anointed king leads to loss. This is a message that we today need to hear. Because each and every one of us is trapped and lured in various ways to find means by which we revert to other kings in our lives other than the king God wants to set over us. And this morning, we want to see how both of these kings are installed and what are the effects of their reign. What is their reign characterized by? God's anointed king ascends to the throne. This is the first scene in this, in this chapter. God had anointed King David way back in the middle of the first book of 1 Samuel, back in chapter 16, while David was a young boy. But his actual ascension to the throne did not happen for quite a long time. And in the meantime, he was pursued and persecuted by King Saul. Well, we saw that at the end of the book of 1 Samuel, Saul died 
And now that David heard the news of Saul's death, he is wondering, is this the time? Is he now going to ascend to the throne? But before he even thinks about that or verbalizes that, he's asking the Lord for some clear next steps. Lord, what should I do? He does not want to assume that just because Saul is dead, somehow it is his time to just assume or presume about the throne. So, how is this process that ultimately leads to David's ascent to the throne? It starts with prayer. David ascends to the throne at God's direction. Verse 1, after this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David proves here that he is the right king over God's people because he is seeking God for direction. He is, he is not presuming that he knows what is next, even though, humanly speaking, we would understand if David in his heart and mind was wondering, is this my time? We don't know if David was asking the Lord for direction in every scenario of his life. When, when David went to Philistine land, uh, back in, in 1 Samuel, at the end of 1 Samuel, and he got to Ziklag. There's no sense that he, was inquired, he had inquired of the Lord there. For all this time, as the book of, second, of 1 Samuel came to an end, David's residence is in Philistine land. And now he is wondering, should I go back into any of the cities of Judah? Why is this decision calling explicitly for God's direction? Well, because as we will see, this is, this is a first step that God is taking to lead David to actually ascend to the throne. And the message is clear. David ascends to the throne at God's direction. There's no presumption on David's part here. He wants to make sure he, do, he does what the Lord wants him to do. Well, friends, we see here that David displays this commitment to submit to God and, for, and to God for his direction. Prayer is the venue, is the means by which the people of God who claim to be under the reign of God uh, live under the guidance of God. This is why part of our membership covenant is a commitment to pray for each other. That's why one of our two Sunday services is a prayer service. We want to encourage you to come on Sunday nights to our evening prayer service. Come even tonight at 5.30. We will sing. We will pray. We'll hear God's word proclaimed by uh, our brother, Taylor Deeker, tonight. But we as a congregation want to encourage one another to make prayer a significant part of our lives, not only privately, personally, but also corporately. Why? Because it, it characterizes the kingdom of God. Here is God's man who had been a, a, anointed long ago, and he's asking God for clear direction. Do you seek God for direction? 
in the decisions you have to make? Do you seek God? Do you seek His direction and counsel in your needs or in your opportunities? I don't mean just merely going through the motion of just say a prayer, but in your heart, are you convinced that you need God to show you what you should do? This is why uh, even in our Sunday evening services, one of the particular categories of prayers that we have on a regular basis is to pray for needs in the life of our congregation. We pray for a variety of things, but one of the categories of prayers to pray for needs in the life of this congregation. And let me just tell you what we are praying for regularly. We've been praying for a number of weeks and months as a congregation. Join us in that. We are asking God to raise up more elders and deacons. We're asking God to give us a pastoral assistant. We are asking God to bless the evangelistic Bible study. We're asking God because we want God to lead us in all these needs. God's anointed king is a king who prays, who is seeking God's direction. But we also see that God does something very amazing. He responds to David in a very clear and quick way, in a very precise way. God says to David in verse 1, To which uh, shall I go? And God says to David, To Hebron. The choice of the city was made by God. This was not the choice that David made, but the choice that God made. What's significant about Hebron that God chose it as a place where David should start his residence back in Judah. And then, as we will see when he becomes king, Hebron becomes a place from which he reigns for the first seven years. What, what was significant about Hebron? Hebron was Abraham's city. It was at Hebron that the Lord appeared to Abraham to tell him he will have a son through the barren Sarah. It was at Hebron that Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah were buried. Their bones were there. To them, God had made great promises, and their graves were at Hebron. Hebron was the only land that Abraham actually owned in his entire life after being called to leave his father's house. It was actually the only piece of land of the promised land that Abraham owned. This means that Hebron was the first piece of the promised land that any Jewish person owned. As one Bible teacher put it beautifully, Hebron, we might say, is where Israel's life in the land of God's promises began. This is Hebron. So the fact that God tells David, go back to the land. Yes, come back out of Philistine territory. Come back to the land. 
and go to Hebron. It's a way in which God is connecting David to the promises God made to Abraham. In due time, in sometime shortly after David moved to Hebron, David becomes king there. And it's as if God is telling David, David, you're going to be installed as king over my people. This is where I made promises to my people through Abraham. God is continuing to unfold his promises that he made to Abraham now through the reign of David. And it is while David is at Hebron that the people of Judah make him king. This is God's doing. God is directing David's life. God is making connections that David could not have made on his own. No wonder that when Jesus is introduced in Matthew 1, the very first verse of Matthew 1, Jesus is introduced this way. Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. God is raising up a king over his people who is unfolding and beginning to fulfill the promises that God had made to the patriarchs whose bones were in the cemetery at Hebron. People may die, but God's promises continue to work on and unfold. Another characteristic about God's anointed king is that after he becomes king, the first action that we have recorded of what he does as king of God's people is that he extends blessing and God's grace to those loyal to Saul. In verses 4 and 5, when they told David it was the men of Yabesh Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Yabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. These men of Yabesh Gilead had some very personal connections to Saul. When the Ammonite king Nahash uh, threatened the, the, the people of Israel, the men of Yabesh Gilead sent message to ask for help, and Saul who had just been installed as king over God's people, led the troops of Israel to fight, to fight Nahash. And the Lord used Saul for the deliverance of the people of Yabesh Gilead. That was Saul's first war after being king. So the people of Yabesh Gilead remained very loyal to Saul. They had very good reasons to do so. They remained loyal to him to the grave and beyond it. When the Philistines shamed uh, Saul's body, the men of Yabesh Gilead went through the night to take Saul's body down and give him a proper burial. But now David has come to the throne. What should David do with citizens who are so incredibly loyal to the king who had been chasing him for the past decade? What should, Saul, what should David do to, to citizens who had been so loyal to the king who have caused him so much hurt? 
David could have ignored them. David could have given them the cold shoulder. David could have just waited and see how these men will turn around. David could have distanced himself from them. David could have been suspicious of them. If they're so loyal to Saul, will they ever be loyal to me? There are many reasons why David could have responded in fleshly ways. But notice how David responds. He takes the initiative. When he heard the news that this is what the men of Yabesh Gilead did, he sent messengers to them to bless them. To bless them for their kindness towards King Saul. David blesses the people who showed kindness to the king who had persecuted him and sought to kill him. And more so, David's message to them is not only a message of blessing, but when he actually utters the the content of his message in verse 6, he says, Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. How could David give them such wishes? There's no sense of vengeance or fear or insecurity in David towards these men, even if they had remained so loyal to Saul. How could David do that? Well, because David knew God's character of love and faithfulness. These were two characteristics that God revealed about himself to Moses back in Exodus 34. David desires for these men that God's very love and faithfulness be manifested to them. This is the message that David has, a message of God's grace. But this message had to fill David's own heart before he could wish them that experience. That explains how David kept his heart free of of feelings of vengeance or bitterness or coldness towards these men. You cannot wish these blessings to others if your own heart is not filled with the same grace of God. I wonder if you have relationships that are awkward or difficult and that you need to reach out to them and wish them that the Lord would show them steadfast love and faithfulness. The heart that wishes others God's love and faithfulness has little room for suspicion or bitterness or vengeance. And this is David. And finally, he he not only blesses them and wishes them God's gracious love and faithfulness, but then he makes a promise to them. I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Oh, friends, for the men of Yabesh Gilead to hear that the new king who had just been installed is promising them, I will do good to you. You you hear in David here no sense of competition between him and Saul. There's no sense of, I wonder whose loyalty will, will they continue to show, towards Saul or towards me. I wonder if I need to keep these guys around or just keep them at a distance. There's no sense of competition in David when he looks at the people of Israel and wonder what will they do now. He wants to assure them of his desire to do them good. 
Well, friends, David's reign here puts on spotlight the grace of God. Those who might have been thought as enemies of David are extended blessing, are extended God's love, and are promised good. This is the first description of what David has done after he had been installed king. Keep this portrait in mind as we go to the second part and see something different. But this is how God's anointed king ascended to the throne at God's direction to confirm God's promises and by extending the message of God's love. This characteristic, these characteristics reflect the values of God's king and his kingdom. It'd be nice if the story ended here. It'd be nice. It'd be nice if the story ended here. But sadly, the story is not yet over. Because soon, a competitor arises. Another contender to the throne. And this leaves us, or leads us to the second scene in the story. The starting of David's reign as king encounters a surprising competition or opposition. Look at verse 8 and 9. But Abner the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. What is wrong with this picture? May I ask you? What is wrong with this picture? Several parts. First, to hear that after God's anointed king had been installed and put on the throne, that an alternate king is set over God's people in the northern tribes. Uh, this is the, the northern part of Israel. And notice how Ishbosheth became king. We are told that Abner made him king. This was Abner's initiative. This was Abner's doing. Abner was the commander of Saul's army. Abner's father was Ner. Ner was Saul's brother. So Abner was the nephew of King Saul. Abner wanted Saul's family dynasty to continue on. Even if he himself was not the next in line, Abner wanted to make sure that someone legitimate from Saul's dynasty would be put on the throne. Abner thought he could do that because he was the commander of the army. He had the military might. He could put king whoever he wanted using force and power to install an alternate king over God's people. What makes Abner's initiative even more troubling is that Abner knew David well. Abner was next to Saul when David killed Goliath. It was Abner who was sent by Saul to bring David to Saul after winning against Goliath. Abner was next to Saul during Saul's raids against David. Do you remember those times in 1 Samuel? Twice. 
Saul came so close to David. But God used the blessing of sleep to, uh, to give Saul into David's hands. But David would not take vengeance, would not hurt Saul. Abner was next to Saul in those occasions. On one of them, when David called Saul after he cut a little piece of his, of his mantle, of his robe, called Saul from a distance and told him what had happened. And David had a few words for Abner. In 1 Samuel 24, 20, And now, behold, I know... I'm sorry, uh, in, in Abner, uh, in, ver- in chapter 24... David had a few words for, for, uh, for Abner, telling him that he was sleeping on the job and didn't protect the king. And Saul realized that Abner was not, was not able to. He failed. And Saul says to David in Abner's hearing, Abner was next to him, And behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Abner knew from his boss's mouth who's next in line. And in chapter 26, when David spared Saul's life the second time, Saul publicly acknowledged that David will do great things for the Lord. Abner knew. And if that was not enough evidence, in chapter 3 of 2 Samuel, Abner will confess that he knew that God had promised the throne and the kingdom to David. He knew it all along. And yet, Abner still preferred to install an alternate king on the throne over God's people. Abner did not act in ignorance. He knew full well what God's plan had been, but chose to carry out his own plan to to hold on to the family dynasty. Abner, I might say, had the right theology. Abner had the awareness of God's plan, but he still preferred to install another king over God's people. Abner's not ignorant. Abner is a competitor to God's plans. Abner thinks that his competitive ideas to God's reign and God's plans would be a better deal for the people of Israel. And not only that, but the place where he installs Ishbosheth is significant. In a place called Mahanaim. By the end of the chapter, we find out that in order to cross, to get to Mahanaim, you had to cross the river, Jordan. It was not even in the mainland of the northern tribes. It was on the east side of Jordan. What was special about Bahanaim? It did belong to Israel. It's not that it was not the right thing, but it was just a little weird. It was on the other side of the Jordan River. What was, what's the deep, big deal about Mahanaim? Well, the name Mahanaim means two camps. It was a place where Jacob divided his family in two camps when he heard that Esau was coming for him. 
he thought it would be safe for him, for his family to be divided in two. They'd be better off for them and safer for him to divide up the family in two. It's in that place that Abner installed an alternate king over God's people. This is the precursor that divided God's people in two parts. The northern ten tribes, sometimes referred as Israel or Ephraim. And then the southern tribes called Judah. Later in chapter 6, David will unite these and be king over all 12 tribes together. But even that reign will only last uh, shortly because after Solomon's reign, this division that happens now will happen again and it will last. It will last until Jesus shows up on the scene and he promises in John chapter 10 that he will unite his people again and they will be one flock with one shepherd. Why is that a big deal in John chapter 10? Because the division that happened in here in 2 Samuel 3 is a division that will not be cured until Jesus comes back and promises to unite his people again. What this means for David is that he came to the throne finally, but an alternate king was set up. David's reign is not embraced by all of God's people right away. Actually, for seven and a half years, David is kept at a distance by the majority of God's people. God's chosen king came to the throne of his people at God's direction to fulfill God's promises, to extend grace and the love of God to the people who had been loyal to Saul. And what he gets in return is an alternate king setting up an alternate kingdom. Friends, isn't this instinct what we too would prefer? We install alternate kings over our lives. We prefer to rule, to be ruled by masters of our own choosing instead of embracing the king that God chooses for us. We want to be abners in our own lives. We figure out ways in which we are going to put over the throne of our lives a king we want, and we think it's going to be better for us. The proof that this alternative kingship did not turn out to be a wise choice is the rest of this chapter. For the remainder of this chapter, we encounter a series of conflicts, of violence, and of loss of life. And it was not because the Philistines attacked. This time, it was because Abner provoked David's army. A conflict arose that led to violence and death, and it was because these brothers now fought against each other. Which leads to the last scene in this chapter, the competition that leads to tragedy and loss. The competition that leads to tragedy and loss. Abner is a lead instigator and aggressor for the remainder of this chapter. He gets Saul's army to head out towards the borders of Judah. David's commander, Joab, responds by taking out his men too 
to show pressure and readiness to be there in case, jo- in case Abner attacks. When the two armies meet at the pool, sounds such a non-threatening, hey, we're just checking out the land, having a good time. Abner comes up with an idea, let's have a competition. Some Bible teachers think that actually this was just meant to be not a war, but just to show some strength. Who's stronger? To show some competition. Joab agrees. Twelve men are chosen from each camp, and they go after each other. But this competition turns violent very, very quickly. So violent, all 24 die instantly in the same act. And from that so-called competition of just showing power, a battle emerged and erupted between them. And the conflict did not stop there. Joab's brothers pursued Abner ferociously. One of those brothers is Asahel, the sons of Zariah. Zariah was David's sister. So these are David's nephews. These are dynasty members competing with dynasty members. Abner pleads with Asahel to to stop the competition, stop the running. It will not turn out well. But Asahel is in for the competition, and he is so ferocious, would not turn to the left or to the right, despite the warnings, turn aside, stop the competition. And what he ends up experiencing is being killed on the spot. And then as Abner flees, continues to flee, He's surrounded by the men of Benjamin, and both of these commanders realize, all right, this battle is not going well. So finally, Joab says, Abner, would you call this off? And Abner does. So the men of Israel finally drop the arms and go home. And the scorecards at the end of the chapter shows up. This was not an evil battle. David lost. 20 men, and if 12 of those were including the 20, then besides those 12, another 8. Abner and his army lost 360. It's like 10 times more, 15 times more. The battle was unequal. This competition was not a good deal for Abner. Abner gets a lesson. He cannot set up a kingdom that would be strong enough or stronger than the kingdom that God wants to install. Abner has to learn this lesson the hard way. But there's a few lessons for us to observe from this fiasco on that day, these battles, these violent encounters that day. First, David's name was not present at all in this scenario. He was not involved in these events that have taken place. This conflict was initiated by the generals of two armies, This means that these conflicts are a big contrast with the way David established his reign. David wanted to do good to those who had been loyal to Saul. Those who were loyal to Saul, Abner and his army, was ready for a fight and would not give up. This conflict is not David's doing but the envy and the competition of the northern tribes. 
And yes, the commander of David's army did not stay away from that competition either. Competition of these two kingdoms does not end up well for the, comp for the one who had set up the alternative king. They thought that military power can sort out who should reign. Abner gets a lesson. He's not the one. He, even though he trusted in his army and trusted in his power, he cannot set up a king who would be stronger than the king God would set up. But Abner's spirit is put on display as a warning for all of us. And I think this is the message of the second half of this chapter. It is possible to know the truth, but not to embrace the truth. One Bible teacher put it this way beautifully. It's possible to quote the truth, but not to submit to the truth. To hold the truth and yet assault the truth. Abner is the man in authority and power who feels he has a right to install an alternate king and go to battle against him. Friends, the spirit of Abner is present today. When people think that they have the authority and the right to put up leaders over them, leaders of their own choice, and think of their strength and think of their resources as reasons to give them confidence they can win in this battle. Friend, do you feel that you have the right to determine who reigns over you? Do you feel that you have the right to determine who reigns over you? If you do, thinking, well, I'm a human being. I can make my own choices. Yes, you may make your own choices. But the reality is God as the creator of all the universe has decreed and established and put a king who would reign over people. Because he's the creator, he gets a right to determine who is the right authority over us. Yes, as human beings, we, we have the freedom to choose. But if we choose the wrong king, if we choose the alternate king, if we choose to put over us a king of our own making, it will not turn well with us. That's a lesson of this chapter. Do you feel that you have the right to determine who reigns over you? God says as a creator, I have chosen who should reign over you. The question is, will you embrace him? Will you believe him? Will you follow him? Will you be loyal to him? His king has a message of grace, extending the love of God and the faithfulness of God to you and wants to do you good. Do you feel that you have the authority to determine who you need to listen to and that somehow God has no business or little business in telling you what you should do? Do you give the right to God's king to call the shots in your life? Or like Abner, would you rather preserve the dynasty of your family, of yourself, your name? Friends, it will never turn well. It did not turn well for Abner and his army. It will not turn well for any and all who turn against the reign of God's anointed king. If in a free market society having competition cultivates development, 
in our spiritual lives, cultivating competition to God's anointed king is a sure recipe to tragedy and loss of life, your life. God has installed his king and insisting on a competition brings only tragedy and death. So learn from the lesson of this chapter. By the way, Jesus gave an echo of the lesson of this chapter when he said, no one can serve two kings, two masters. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despite the other. Friends, don't think you can happily and wisely keep both kingdoms near you and serve you both. It does not turn well in the end. Let's pray. Father, you have spoken to us in your word. You have given us patterns in Scripture to show us that when King Jesus is installed, there's the lure, there's a danger of this competition of other kings being set up. Father, we confess that other kings are easily set up in our hearts. Father, we confess that there's some among us this morning for whom following that alternate king is the way of their lives right now. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes. Help us see that the king you have installed on your throne is stronger than any king. That he will reign. And his reign is a reign of grace, of love, and of doing good to us. Help us embrace him. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.